Oh, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Lovely evening, isn't it? Um, God is good. Hope you've had a good week. I've had a good week. I'm going to read a wee bit of the the letter to the Hebrews, uh, chapter two, verses one to. 1-12 of chapter 2 um, A warning to pay attention We must pay more careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honour, and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. So last week we had a look at this fascinating book, uh, the book of Hebrews. We saw some of the value of the book. Um, it helps our Bible study, linking Old and New Testament. It keeps us Christ-centered, with special emphasis on his <coughs> priestly ministry. It build, bind, builds up our faith, inspiring us from the lives of earlier people of faith. It warns us against backsliding, drifting away, and uh, being willfully apostatizing from Jesus it stresses the importance of church membership and fellowship as a means of strengthening excuse me and it supports us in times of trial and persecution because the writer encourages the Hebrews in the light of all this how they ought to live and I pursued a particular line which uh, along the authorship of Hebrews which was a line taken by Martin Luther the Protestant reformer um, he said it was possibly Apollos in Acts 18 who was the author of Hebrews and there's just a wee five verse cameo in Acts 18 about Apollos he was a Jew from Alexandria 
a brilliant man. And we saw how Alexander was the, the center of culture and learning for the whole of the ancient world. And how uh, the Jews who settled there in the diaspora when the Jews were scattered from their homeland under the invasions of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and how maybe oh, at least 100,000, maybe half a million uh, were settled in Alexandria and how a lot of them forgot their Hebrew which is easy to do, <laughs> I can tell you um, but the people, the, the folk in Alexandria who were Christ, who, who came to know God came to know God via the Greek Old Testament. From 285 BC forward, um, they had a translation of the Old Testament in Greek, and they were talking about it at the end last week, so here you are. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the Old Testament in Greek. Two volumes, just to give you an idea how neat the Hebrew is. That's the Hebrew Old Testament. <laughs> That's Greek, that's Hebrew, and that's just complete the picture for you. You can look at the, the Greek New Testament as well. But he was mighty in the scriptures, as the old King James Version description of Apollos. He was a brilliant man. He was a humble man because he was willing uh, to pay attention to what was a fatal lapse in his learning. He, he preached Jesus knowing only the baptism of Jesus. He didn't know about the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and he was humble enough to listen to... I, I visualise him as an old couple, maybe I'm wrong. They're a perfectly balanced couple because if you look at the references to them, I think you'll find there's almost 50-50 uh, the balance between Apollos being mentioned... Sorry, uh, Priscilla being mentioned first and Aquila being mentioned first. He's mentioned first maybe three times, and she's mentioned first maybe three times. But a perfectly balanced couple. And they opened up their home for hospitality, which is a great lesson to us. And they invited Apollos home, and they had hospitality from them. And it says they explained to him more fully the way of Jesus. And they listened to them. Well, a whole lot of big-headed intellectuals wouldn't have listened to them but he listened to them and he was he was not only very clever he was also a brilliant speaker and uh, probably with a powerful voice um, and he he learned from them and he went out and he was not only humble he became very useful in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ preaching the gospel and so tonight um, I want to move on from that to give you some reasons that puzzled me and may puzzle you. One of them was, uh, why was this letter written? It's very vague. It just says to the Hebrews, they're all over the place. And it, I take it that the majority of them mentioned here would be in groups. They were converted Jews. Um, and why, would it, why was the letter written? That's one question to the scattered Hebrews. Um, the second question is, um, <coughs> why were the Christians so hated in the first century? You ever thought about that? Maybe think of ourselves as nice people, you know. But why, why were the Christians so hated? And I'll try and answer both of these questions tonight in the brief time at our disposal. <laughs> First of all, 
You've got to understand the Roman Empire's view of religion. The Romans were neat people, they were like the Japanese, and everything was all docketed. And they had what they called religio licita. A religio licita was a legal religion, one that was recognised by the Roman state. And Judaism, the Jews, were a religio licita. Sometimes they acted against the Jews, as the Emperor Claudius did. You read about that in Acts. Um, but most of the time, if you were a member of the, the, the Jewish uh, religion, you were left in peace because you were a religio licita. But Christianity was not a religious religio licita. It was a religio illicita. Um, and uh, an interesting phrase comes from Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. He was the father-in-law, I think, of Julius Agricola, the governor of Britain. And here's what he said about the Christians. He was explaining why Nero would persecute the Christians. And he said in his Annals of the Roman People, Christians were hated for their enormities. Now, nowadays you think Christians are nice, respectable folk. They wear suits and ties and stuff like that and go to church. Uh, but in the time of the Roman Empire, they had bad press and they had three specific charges against the Christians. Um, and the great reason why this letter, well, one of the reasons why this letter was written was to stop Jews sliding back into Judaism and revalidating their position as Jews um, because the Christians were hated for their enormities. Now what were the enormities? Well, there were three of them as I say. The first one was that they were atheists. Christians were atheists. Now we can't imagine that. But when you think about it, all the other religions had visible representations of their gods. But the Christians didn't. The Christians believed that God was spirit, and those that worship God must spirit him, worship him in spirit and in truth. So they said, you are atheists, you have no visible representation of your God. And so the Christians were written off as atheists. They don't believe in God. They don't have, how, how can they show us their God if there's no images of their God? You know, I mean, it's, it's beside the point that they didn't know Isaiah's prophecy. You read Isaiah's prophecy, it's a marvelous passage against idolatry in Isaiah. It says how this guy cuts a piece off a tree and he halves it in two and uh, he kindles a fire with one half and the other half he carves into a god. And he bows down to it and worships this. It's the same bit of wood, really. It's that bit that's kindling the fire. But he worships it. And you know, there's a tremendous scathing tone in what Isaiah says about paganism and idolatry. They've got eyes and they can't see, and ears and they can't hear, and mouths and they can't speak, and, and they've no breath, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but. That was the first charge against the Christians. They're atheists. They don't have any visible representation of their God. And then uh, 
Rumours spread and gossip spreads. We know that. You know, you should say, and they gossiped a lot about the Christians. What did they do? Why did they go up to that big house every Sunday? You know, they didn't have churches. What are they up to? You know, and you say, well, um, we've noticed they call one another brothers and sisters. You know, Graham greeted me tonight, hello, brother. You know, we say brother and sister, right? And so they said, here's, here's what happens. They gathered up in that Bible. They, they, they gathered in family homes. Quite often poor homes, I would guess, because there are a fair amount of slaves in the early church. And they, they gathered in simple, humble surroundings. What did they do? Well, um, they go up and they, they conduct a religion up there. And they call one another brothers and sisters. And what's their principal activity? Well, they're always saying they love one another. Right? They love one another. Now, places like Corinth and various other cities around the Mediterranean world, they, they practiced immorality. No barriers whatsoever. And so they said, here's what happens. The brothers and the sisters get together in that big house and they have lovemaking. <laughs> they have lovings. And they say they love one another. And they, in some of the pagans' festivals and feasts, uh, they had what you would call f- free love. It's really, it's really not free love, but they had free love where they just interchanged partners and had wife swapping parties and all that kind of stuff. But they thought the Christians did that. Here's what happens at a Christian meeting. The brothers gather together and love the sisters and uh, they're, uh, they're, they're immoral these Christians they're not only atheists they're also immoral and then what's the principal service that you have when the brothers and the sisters meet oh it's called the Eucharist You know, it's the thank you service for, for Jesus dying but if what happens at the Eucharist Oh well, um, we eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. Really? The brothers meet the sisters and they love one another and they have offspring resulting from these lovings. And then they have their Eucharist. They're very grateful for all this. The Eucharist is a grateful service. Eucharisto in Greek means to thank. It's a thanksgiving service. They're very thankful for the offspring. And they eat them with their services. They're cannibals. That was the third charge I brought against the early Christians. They are uh, atheists. They're immoral. And they're cannibals. Well, even in our time, back in the, the early missionary days in Africa, you know, and later on when the missionaries came out, the missionary would, you know, bring some food with them and they would open this tin and the front of the tin was a picture of beans. You know, see what's in the can, oh, beans, you know, beans in the can. And it's what you having today, oh, there was this picture of greens, wee green things, you know, what's that? Oh, that's peas, you know. So then the, the missionary lady had a baby and you know, they, they bring out a wee tin with a picture of a baby on it. <laughs> so the Africans thought in the early days that... Uh, <laughs> The missionaries ate tinned baby. <laughs> you know, it's incredible to us. 
but, but it was not incredible to the world of the Roman Empire because where anything went I mean the, the, one of the religio malicita uh, religions was Mithraism where you to crawl through a pit under the body of a, of a slain bull and let its blood drop on you and all that sort of stuff a whole lot of weird and wonderful uh, rituals that were in pagan religion and what they did in their thinking they, they transferred these ideas and, and applied them to Christianity so that's why well, at least I'm trying to explain that. I think it's my, it's maybe not only my idea, but um, I think that's one of the reasons why Christians were hated for their enormities, and there were bouts of persecution. Nero, Domitian, Domitian was even more cruel than Nero was, and even more systematic in his. Uh, killing off of Christians around about AD 90 we think maybe the book of the Revelation was written around about the time of Domitian's persecution so um, atheism uh, they called it a Thyestian feast where the brothers and sisters made love to one another and then the third thing was cannibalism where they ate the babies the produce of the worship of the brothers and the sisters and so the writer to the Hebrews is writing to the to the, the Jewish converts and he's saying to them don't go back to Judaism the Lord Jesus Christ is marvellous and wonderful as we've been singing and he outstrips everything that happened in Judaism don't go for the safety of Judaism the, the, the glory of Christ's redemption is greater than any Jewish ritual and supersedes it and so in this wonderful letter one of the key words is superiority better he's saying in this whole text Jesus and the Christian faith and the Christian gospel are better than a whole lot of things and we'll just take time to go through some of the things tonight you've got them in your handout um, first of all well, I, I use, I've used Ryrie um, I've got a book called the Ryrie Study Bible it's actually an American Standard Version Bible. I don't like the translation very much because there's too many Latinisms in it and too fancy a translation. I'm not keen on it. But the, the man who wrote the notes in this Bible, a man called C.C. Riley. So, Riley, I like Riley very much, not only for his sensible comments as he goes through the Bible, he writes footnotes. You've got to be careful with people that write footnotes. The Schofield Bible has footnotes and not a lot of them are what we would believe in nowadays but the Ryrie Study Bible is excellent, I really like it and I most of all like his logical uh, analysis of the books, he's got a logical analysis and a wee introduction to every book in the Bible which I have found very helpful and here's his analysis, well I've doctored it up a wee bit but this is basically his analysis of Hebrews and the first point in it is this the superiority of the person of Christ. Isn't that a great title? Verse 1 of chapter 1 through to chapter 4, verse 18. And he divides it up nicely. 
is superior to the prophets. The opening verses of chapter 1. In the past God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. At many times, the Greek is polychronos, and in various ways polymeros. Um, my translation would be in fits and starts and bits and pieces. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't reveal himself all at once or through a great period of time. It was at, in different times God appeared and spoke through the prophets, um, which was wonderful. So it's the sporadic and partial versus the constant and full because in Christ we've got the full story the sun is the radiance of God's glory he has in these last days spoken to us by a son verse 2 whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe and the exact the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word and this word radiance is a special word Um, it means the the visible shining um, of God's glory captivated in the person of Christ Uh, there was a congregational theologian in the beginning of the 20th century, P.T. Forsyth, and he says, In Christ we do not merely hear about God, we meet him. He did not only come to reveal God, he is God in revelation. You know, it's a marvellous definition that really encapsulates most of what Hebrews 1, chapters 1 in the first few verses say, that... The, 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 the visitation of God in the past was through the prophets it was sporadic and partial it didn't tell the whole story it was anticipatory of a lot that would happen but nothing, none, nothing was totally revealed there but in Christ he's spoken to us now and constantly later on he says Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever he gives us the continuum of God's presence through Christ in chapter 13 verse 8 so he's superior to the prophets and the prophets were great I mean Elijah what a man Elijah was there was a a famous Scottish preacher called Dr Alexander White he was brought up in a peasant's cottage in Angus and his parents were never really uh, married. You know, he was a, an illegitimate child, you could say. And he became one of the, the best preachers in Scotland ever. And he was in Free St. George's, Edinburgh. And uh, <laughs> it's some strange habits. He used to wear tackety boots in the study, just to remind him he was there to work. <laughs> you know? And... Uh, he was he was just a, a wonderful man, and he wrote a whole uh, series of books uh, called Bible Characters. He had Old Testament characters, New Testament characters. They used to be all in one volume, but he, uh, sorry, they were all in individual volumes you could get. I've got a volume of his Old Testament characters and a volume of his New Testament characters, and his sermons are just wonderful. And some of his language is really something else. His introductory sermon on Elijah says, Elijah was a Mount Zion of a man 
with a heart like a thunderstorm. You know, I think that's a wonderful sentence. And and uh, a Mount Zion of a man. And Elijah was a great man, but the Lord Jesus is better than Elijah. The Lord Jesus is God's final word to us, and His complete word. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. Is the next thing. You know, from verse 4, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Well, what's the difference? Well, Jesus was begotten from all eternity. He uses Old Testament quotes here, and the, the scholars have a lot of time trying to figure them out. A lot of ink has been shed, but we won't go into that tonight. Um, is superior to the angels because they were made but he was begotten from all eternity the theologians say he was begotten and he was sovereign he was ruling over the world um, he was the object of worship but the angels were the worshippers the angels were said, said let all the angels of God worship him so he was the object of worship, but they were just the worshippers. So he's superior to the angels. Can I move on? He's superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, in his divine person, in his saving proclamation, and in his delivering purpose. And then he says, he's superior to Moses. Now Moses was one of the great characters of Judaism. Abraham and Moses, you would say, were the two chief figures, Abraham, Moses and Elijah, you would say probably if you wanted a summary of all the Old Testament uh, key figures. It was superior to Moses. In uh, chapter 3, he says, um, He was faithful, Jesus the Apostle and High Priest whom we confess, verse 2, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in God's house. Verse 3, Jesus had been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honour than the house itself. And so he said we should worship Jesus, first of all, because of his superiority to Moses. Moses was just a servant in the house, and Jesus was the son. Jesus is the builder, and the house of God are the the gathered fellowship of God in his church they're just the building but he is the builder so he's superior to Moses and then uh, there's a warning about unbelief coming in uh, he warns us about unbelief in various parts of the letter but um, we should believe in Jesus and we shouldn't worship the Old Testament characters who were wonderful in their own way. And then he's superior in his qualifications. The second main heading, the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. This is one of the emphasis you don't find in Paul, but you find it in the letter to the Hebrews. It stands on its own here. He gives a new dimension to Christ here. Um, he's superior in the order of his priesthood. Now, the difference between a priest and a prophet is the prophet spoke to men in the name of God but the priest spoke to God on behalf of men 
right? So that's the difference between them. And in the matter of his priesthood, we have a great, wonderful high priest, you know. Uh, we've got it in a in a paraphrase, in a Scottish paraphrase, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. He sympathises with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. He represents us to God. He is our great high priest. He's also the victim. He's also the redeemer. There's a whole lot of uh, concentrated features in the character of the Lord Jesus as presented in Hebrews. It's superior in his qualifications. Chapter 5 and verses 1 to 10. He talks about that, about how priests are selected among men, appointed to represent them in matters related to God, offering gifts and sacrifices. Um, the priest, high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Greater than the high priest even, by the superiority of his qualifications. Um, and... No one takes this order of himself. He must be called by God. The Aaronic priesthood were called by God. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. You know? And that's wonderful. You are my son. And the son, um, John says in chapter 1, he became flesh um, and camped among us is the word uh, it's temporary dwelling he camped among us and we gazed at his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth that's what we've been singing about tonight and that's the superiority of Christ's priesthood and his qualifications and in the order of his priesthood. The second part of this section, he compares Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And it's quite an, a tortuous, difficult argument for us because um, he presents a... He presents Melchizedek in a, an unusual way. He said, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, the, the, the normal order of priesthood was the, the priesthood of Aaron and his family and his descendants. But in the case of Melchizedek, Melchizedek uh, suddenly appears in the book of Genesis. You know? And we're not told who his mummy was and who his daddy was or any of his descendants or where he came from. He just suddenly appears. And the argument here is that um, he stands separate and apart from the priesthood order of Aaron. And um, he, was, he was offered uh, an offering by a pagan king if you read back in Genesis, um, he is the great, he's a, uh, uh, he, his priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, it actually prior to the Aaronic priesthood, um, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, because of how he's presented in scripture, it's an eternal priesthood, he's not got any earthly roots, 
And the Lord Jesus Christ um, has heavenly roots, and that makes him and his priesthood greater even than the Old Testament priesthood, which was, uh, they, they had a special place in Israel, the priesthood family of Aaron, um, and the rest of the, the Jews were supposed to supply gifts, tithes, and offerings to keep the priestly families alive. Um, and then there's a superiority of his priestly ministry in chapter 9. Um, the earthly priesthood glorified the past. And there are a lot of good things about the past. But the problem is when you sit looking at the past all the time, you get a crick in your neck. <laughs> and there's a lot of things about the earthly tabernacle, the tent shrine in the desert. Uh, that were good things in fact when you get to Revelation that's a wee side point <laughs> when you get to the book of the Revelation the Revelation doesn't exalt the temple very much but it does exalt the tabernacle the tent shrine was a kind of original place of meeting the tent of meeting in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is a bit suspicious of palaces and temples <laughs> If you want to find God in the Old Testament, you don't find him in the palaces and the temples. You find him in the, the slave camps and the slime pits of Egypt. That's where you find the people of God in the Old Testament. And so, the glory of this priestly ministry is, although there's wonderful things about the tabernacle, its first room, the curtain... The most holy place, the altar of incense, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, which contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that buried. Now some, some of the folk were just so taken up with the Old Testament, they slipped back into Judaism. And the writer here is saying, Oh, there were good points in Judaism, but we must move on. God has given us a better way and a better priest than Aaron ever was. And he exalts Christ at the expense of Aaron and his earthly and Aaron's earthly priesthood compared to Christ's priesthood it's like comparing reality and shadow now if you ever read their philosophy Plato's Republic we were forced to read Plato's Republic for the BD exam it was a set text and uh, I'm not good at I was never good at the philosophy um, I failed the exam before the finals I got 39% that was my great achievement <laughs> I got 39% for philosophy but in the providence of God there was a wee brother last in our class who loaned me her notes and I got through philosophy by the providence of God and the help of Hazel McLeese from Port Glasgow the father was the dentist there <laughs> I sailed through philosophy, didn't bother, but it was her notes that did it, you know, because I was a shameless copier of other people's work. And, and, and so, in, in Plato's Republic, he's, he's got a story about a cave, the image of the cave. It's, it's really very good. The, the cave is a, it's like a campfire, um, and there's a wall. And there are people around the campfire, right? And the people who come into the cave, they can't see the people at the campfire. 
but the campfire throws a shadow against the back wall right and so the people who come into the cave uh, are able to interpret what's going on near the fire from the images that appear in the back wall are you with me? Yeah. Uh, well that's okay well that's Plato's Republic and what, what Plato says is that our life is like shadow land you know um, we won't know what the reality is till after we die and go to wherever we go to you know um, and it's the, the contrast between uh, Christ's um, priestly ministry and Aaron's priestly ministry is like the comparison between shadow and reality Aaron's is a prefiguring like shadows against the wall but when Christ came who needs candles when you've got the sunlight you know Uh, that's what it's like Um, the superiority of Christ and it's the tabernacle versus the temple the literal and temporary versus the spiritual and eternal that's the passage chapters 9 and 10 so how are we doing? Well, not, not too bad. Okay, I nearly finished. <laughs> and the, the third, the fourth main point is the superiority of the power of Christ. Chapter eleven. Chapter eleven is the chapter of faith. It's what you call the Westminster Abbey of the Old Testament. You know, and you just love it. You're the people of faith. It starts off with a wonderful definition of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commanded for. Faith is, oh how can I define it? I I had a a definition that said faith is like a, a leap in the dark into the arms of God. Faith is like when you die a going to sleep and waking up in your father's bed you know Mm -hmm. faith is like trusting yourself to the the word of God and to the power of God to change your life you know and and some of us when we we got converted we hadn't a clue clue. I mean I used to think that the songs they sang were daft when I was I came about the mission hall when I was a wee boy but um, the power of faith in Christ, uh, the whole of chapter 11 is all about this. It's absolutely a wonderful chapter, chapter 11. Um, there's a famous preacher in Westminster Chapel, London, called uh, G. Campbell Morgan. And he wrote a wonderful book on Hebrews 11 called The Triumphs of Faith. You should read it if you ever come across it, buy it. Very good. There's the power of faith in Christ, the power of hope in Christ. Chapter 12, verse 1 to 29. Hope in Christ. He says, let's, let's, since we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, he says, it's like like Leicester Stadium this week, you know, it's full of folk. 
all around watching us. They're, they're watching us. The, the saints of old are like spectators cheering us on. Um, that's how chapter 12 starts. A great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race set before us. And uh, I got a guy to make me a poster of verse 3. Consider him, I want to put it up in my room and remember it throughout my college course. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners um, against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I didn't want to lose heart studying and I just kept that up in the wall all the time and kept reminding myself of it. The power of hope in Christ and the disciplines of life, the, the debatable things of life, you know, the, the sin that easily entangles, the things that hinder us, and the sin that so easily entangles us. Um, you get stripped for action if you're running a race. Um, the disciplines of life, the direction of life, verses 12 to 17. Um, he talks about the direction in life. Our direction is under God. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, verse 11, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. And he uses the verb, uh, you know how we talk about a gymnasium? The verb is gymnazo here. Um, discipline is God's, gymnad, God's gymnasium to develop our spiritual muscle so that we continue running and twice in my ministerial career I almost gave up uh, I just I was going to quit absolutely quit because of things that happened to me um, in the ministry but this, this passage says come on uh, we, God will exercise give us exercise in his spiritual gymnasium and you'll be able to stand up and to be strong and to continue in Christian service although you feel it's time to give up don't do that don't do that so strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees <laughs> make level paths for your feet um, the disciplines, the direction, the drive of life, the duty of life. We owe it to other people. Um, we owe it to other people so that they see us continuing in the Christian way. And then the power of the love of Christ in chapter 13. Absolutely wonderful. It covers all, all sorts of fellowship problems. Love each other as brothers. Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And there's a very good one in, chat in verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Social duties, spiritual duties. And a con concluding benediction. Oh, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for these wonderful books in the New Testament which inspire us and encourage us and warn us. And we thank you for the Christian life. 
And we thank you above all that we can be living that life, looking unto Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the, <clears throat> the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God on high. Help us to consider him, lest we be weary and faint in our minds. For Jesus' sake, we pray for your parting now. Amen.